Welcome. Welcome, Mobile Blue listeners, to another episode of the Soccer Capital Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Turner, and with me here in our Southern Illinois studios is producer Mason, and also joining us from the actual St. Louis metropolitan area is Sean Campbell. How are you guys doing today? I'm good. I am uh, not tired, not hungover. I'm ready to go. Wow. For I once. Know. It's impressive. Yeah, really, for once. <laughs> I'm doing all right. Um, tough loss over the weekend, but you know, we're still up there, so we're good. Yep. Tough losses. Everyone gets tough. You know, what you'd like to see is uh, losses that aren't tough. How often does that happen? <laughs> Never. All my losses is lessons. We really appreciate all of you uh, listening to our podcast every week. And uh, remember, if you could, go ahead and hit that button to subscribe on your podcaster of choice. And please rate and review this podcast. It really helps us out. We do have a big show for you today, and we actually have a full lineup of news about St. Louis City Soccer Club. It's a big deal. That's what we're made to do. We're going to like doing this. A uh, big thing this week, and probably a big talking point, is in the athletic, the uh, behind the paywall, of course, but I do encourage you, if you subscribe to anything, the athletic, at least alone on their MLS coverage, is worth the price of admission. Uh, Sam Stashkal, yeah, it's even harder to spell, and Paul Tenorio did put out a notes, and they did report that St. Louis City SC has reached out to New York Red Bull assistant coach Bradley Carnell to be their first head coach in the team. Didn't say he signed, didn't say anything else, just a report that talks were beginning or have commenced. Uh, no idea how long, far along they are or anything like that, but it is exciting to know that the team is looking ahead already at this time, trying to get the framework in line with a new head coach to work with John Hackworth, to work with the academy, to work with the signing of new players and developing the roster of the first team. So this is exciting news. A little bit about Bradley Cornell is he's been with the New York Red Bulls since 2017. He's been an assistant coach under Jesse Marsh, Chris Armas, and uh, under current coach uh, Gerhard Struber. Uh, he also, after Armas was fired in September of 2020, did take on the interim role and led the team into the playoffs last year as well. Uh, so he does have a minimal amount of head coaching experience. He's played under Ralph Ragnarok, who is the guru that set up the Red Bull style. The Red Bull style being, as Matt Doyle on uh, MLS Soccer calls it, energy drink soccer. High pressing, high intensity, high energy uh, gamesmanship. Sounds very familiar. That's exactly the sort of style that Lutz Fine and Steel wants to install with St. Louis City, both at the first team and all the way through the academy. He has a relationship with Lutz as well. Uh, there was a time when he played in a match that was organized by Lutz's Global United FC Foundation and is listed as a Global United FC ambassador. Now, he does not have any true head coaching experience other than running the team as an interim. Uh, there's reports out there that that was actually a shock. He thought he was going to be fired with the rest of Armas's staff and ended up with the interim head coach. There's also some words out there from supporters of Red Bull 
in uh, New York that, uh, or New Jersey, I should say more geographically correct, uh, that they don't want him to leave. They're really happy with what he's doing. He's been in charge of the attack for uh, the Red Bulls, and uh, that's something that uh, is necessary for this team going forward. The high-pressing style should generate a lot of opportunities in the attacking third. You have to finish them because you do leave yourself open to be uh, wide open in the back when you do a high-pressing style during the game. So you got to take advantage of the opportunities you found, and that's something that uh, the Red Bulls this year under Gerhard Struber have done a lot better job of doing uh, late in the season once they figured out their style. You almost have to ask if they went ahead and are reaching out to him because he doesn't have any coaching experience because that he fits the style. He has that experience working in that style that we want to run, but because he doesn't have any coaching experience, but you've got a guy in Hackworth who's already coached coaches and that's his job is to continue coaching the coaches. He's got someone that he can really work with. He's, he's, I, I hate the analogy, but he's like putty in his hands and can really make sure he fits the style and help him be better at coaching that style with players that we end up bringing in and bringing up through the academy. So, I mean, you, you, you do have to ask that question. If that was by design getting someone who's not already coached and has their own mindset of what they want to run. And uh, that's a very good point. It's something that I had thought of. If they brought in a high-profile coach, how would he have worked with Hackworth? Would there have been a butting of heads? I had some issues with how that would work. Bringing in an assistant coach actually fits in that philosophy quite well. Uh, especially, I thought that somewhere in the Red Bulls organization would be where the head coach would come from. But it's good to know that uh, Carnell, if he is the coach, and of course, early days yet, this could all change. It's just a report that talks are ongoing. But if they did bring him in, He's steeped in MLS, something that I feel is very important, that the coach needs to know MLS, can't come in from the outside, and should fit in very well with Hackworth, who is actually the very high status signing on the coaching staff that they've had so far, along with Andrea Schumacher uh, leading the academy. So uh, this seems to fit in with the way that they have set up the structure along the playing side of the team and how it all works. And uh, like I said, fits in with the, with the team, should be able to integrate into the you know verticality of the way that they want to develop players working on the same game plan from bottom all the way up to the first team. Uh, but like I said, we'll just have to wait and see if he's actually signed or if it's just a talking point. It's a long way to go. Interesting thing about this is this news was broken by... Stace Gall and Tonorio at The Athletic, who also broke the news about the John Hatworth signing two months before it was actually announced by the team. It's pretty interesting that all of this seems to come from national MLS writers. Uh, listening to the Flyover Footy podcast on Friday, uh, I had these thoughts. They also reiterated a lot of them, so a hat tip to them and kudos to them for coming up with the ideas as well. But, uh, you know, the team can't be happy that all of their news, the th- things that they're doing, their discussions are getting out in the public. Well, get used to it. Welcome to the big leagues. These guys are 
the beat writers, probably I would say the beat writers of MLS. They've got a lot of contacts. They've been at this a while. They're finding out uh, who to talk to. And the question is, is that who to talk to within the structure of St. Louis City or outside? It could very well be that they've already gotten this information about talks with Carnell from somebody in the Red Bulls structure as well. It could be somebody from the league office. It could be, for that matter, Taylor Twelman has the best contacts in the business. Did he slip something because he didn't want to break news for a team that he's vocally supported in the past? I don't believe that, but who knows? But uh, it's going to happen more and more and more. Uh, We're going to hear things coming in from the outside that the team doesn't have control of the information that's out there. While it's not great news for the front office of St. Louis City, it is great news for podcasters like us and uh, Flyover Footy and all of us that like to talk about such things and analyze these moves. The big question about all this is, when is the local media in St. Louis going to get in on some of this information and break their news themselves? There's been a profound lack of information in the local media about St. Louis City. Granted, it's 18 months out before they even start play. It's a little early to put a beat reporter on the scene, but it looks like uh, the national media is higher on this and more up on it than the local media is. Yeah, and I was definitely going to, I was just about to say, um, I don't think we're going to get any dedicated writing in even the post until we actually have a team to put on the field. Um, just because a lot of people, I'm not, I'm, going to say it right now it may be a hot take but yeah you have those built-in two million fans by putting a team in st louis because we just love our teams but a lot of these people you know with it being pushed off a year and it being so far out until we have a, a team on the field i don't think people are it's not really on their minds it's not going to get views on the website because let's be real most people here don't read up get a print newspaper to alert to their house anymore so it's not going to get the views, and that's why they're not going to put a writer on it. So, But once we get that team on, I think we'll get a lot more news actually coming in from the city. Yeah, this was, those were my thoughts exactly pretty much. Is like, yeah, we're not going to get like a Derek Gould at Post-Dispatch doing inside sourcing for St. Louis City 18 months before, for, before team the first team takes the field. And it's just not going to happen. There was almost no dedicated talker reporting, even when St. Louis FC was here. FC uh, St. Louis FC reporting in post was very few and far between. Um, it just wasn't something that the sports department at the Post-Dispatch cared much about. So there's nobody there who's done it, really. There's not a lot of interest in it at the moment. It's too far out. Stuff like this is going to get reported by the national media, the athletic, whatever, because they already have sources built in through pretty much every other club. They're established. So, yeah, it's going to get broken by writers outside of the Post-Dispatch and the St. Louis media market just by law of large numbers, basically. it's Those are the writers that have access to that information. Nobody at the Post-Dispatch does. And, uh, yeah, that's the case. On the other hand, if they wait until the season starts, you know, play starts, which is understandable, especially in uh, the market that especially print media with the post-dispatches in, which revenues are dropping and they're not hiring a lot of people to cover things. 
But are there contacts being made in there? Sure. And I do want to clarify, I don't mean that, like, you know, it's going to be, like, the day before, like, the first game of the 23 season that they're going to be looking for a writer. But you know what I mean. Yes, I do. Uh, It's interesting to think about and what's going to go forward. There is an opportunity for someone else out there that's not with the primetime media to start building contacts and hearing information. I volunteer I my ear to the ground. Okay. <laughs> I keep my ear to the ground, and I try to contact people, but I am no means going to be, you know, I'm not even in the city, so I'm not going to be able to break news or develop hard contacts at this time. And uh, maybe as time goes forward, maybe not. We're more interested in analyzing, but there is an opening out there for anybody grassroots to do that. And then once these things get out that are outside of the club's control, it's up to grassroots uh, media, us podcasters that are already covering the team. There's going to be bloggers coming out. There's going to be opportunity to find information, but also it's out there. It's outside the club's control. We get a chance to analyze and talk about how it works. And uh, the club's going to control their communications very closely. So it gives a lot of time for us to say such things. And and actually the role that we're doing, us podcasters out there and uh, bloggers that'll come on and people that do that, uh, vodcasters that might come online a little closer, it's important to what we do is because we analyze what's going on and what we hear, what little we get from the club or any reports we get from the media. And we have time to sit and analyze it And then at least, if nothing else, come up with talking points that other people out there, like you lovely listeners, can, uh, uh, you know, get the, assimilate the information that we're disseminating to you that we've accumulated. And then you can start conversations amongst yourselves. So you meet somebody at a bar or at work and you're talking and somebody on the outside is interested in what you're talking about. They learn a little bit, at least get interested in something, whether it works out or not. That's how you build a strong and large and vibrant supporters uh, group for a team uh, throughout the city. Even not, not even those that go to the stadium, but those who are interested and are going to follow the team and revel in the success and die by the failures, as all of us will as well. Yeah, we're all weaved into this big supporters network um, from like, you know, News sources that we get through us doing our analysis and our punditry on it down through people who listen, who read those those uh, those reports. That's how you grow a fan base. And if anybody's interested, some of the ones I follow, I guess, spoke about Paul Tenorio and Sam Stasekel at The Athletic, Jeff Ruder at The Athletic, Jeffrey Carlisle, who covers a lot of things soccer wise for ESPN. He's got a heavy plate, but he might break some. There's at MLS Soccer, you're going to get a lot of information from Charles Boehm and Tom Bogart. I listen to them a lot. And uh, Stephen Goff of the Washington Post has been breaking news on uh, soccer in the U.S. for decades now, uh, even before I started following the game very closely in this country. So it gives you an idea of who you can listen to and get some of this information. I think it's time to move on from this topic uh, until we have more information. But there's other big news coming out. But first of all, we'll start off with talk about the St. Louis City Academy. Uh, They did play this weekend against, well, the U-17s played against Sporting KC at Creepcore 
Park and uh, did get a draw out of that. The U-16s played the Michigan Jaguars 3-1. to They won 3-1. to And uh, both teams now still have a... They're, they haven't lost at home, let's put it that way, so far. Undefeated. Undefeated. Been drawn, but not uh, been beaten. Hey, a points per, points in games is points in games. That's all I can ask for. And undefeated at home is great. Even if you've gotten draws here and there, undefeated at home is great. Yeah, let's Just wait till we get our own stadium, and then it's going to be even better, because then it's yeah. going to be so raucous, I can't wait. Yeah, and they get the full uh, academy development, the whole vision of what the academy is going to be actually developed, constructed. Uh, the building, the fields, everything they can practice on, the chance to play. Uh, the other thing to also keep in mind, these are, you know, they're Kids. under 16s and under 17s. Some of them are quite young out there and playing above their age level. Uh, so travel to Michigan, or as they're going to do this weekend, the U-17s are traveling to Houston. That's a big deal. It's a lot to take in. But when you got the home cooking and you keep winning and you keep showing the same sort of style of play that is the philosophy of the team, that's exciting. Yeah, it been saying it since it started and since we went to that first Academy game at home and and we saw those those big wins. Um, it's it's a proof of concept for the system and the system is working. And uh, in that U-17 game against Sporting KC's Academy, uh, Aaron Hurd, the big name uh, get for the Academy that came out of the Philadelphia Union Academy previously, uh, did have an assist to Caden Glover. And that leads into the next bit of big news is that Aaron Hurd, who's only 15, has been called up to the uh, U.S. Youth Men's National Team Camp for the U-17s group. Uh, he is there now, I believe, that that is going on at this time. And uh, it's a big get. The academy just started. Team's still a year and a half away, and you've already got somebody playing on the U-17s men's national team. He did make his name before he went to Philadelphia Union with an under-13s national team and was a standout performer, and that's how he made his name. It's taken him a little time to get up and running. I think people, given his stature, expected more, but perhaps that's because of the intensity of this style of play. And also, it was talked about on this week on the St. Louis City SC app. They had an interview with a sports psychologist talking about the sort of mental training they do and how they're going to, with this high-pressing style, how they have to uh, be able to find points, attention points, as they say, uh, to pick out how to play and what to play. That has to take adjustments. Even when Union plays a pressing style, this is probably going to be a little more intense than even that. But it's uh, good news for a team so far in advance to already have somebody in the academy called up to a national team. It's not unheard of, but it's rare. Also with Aaron Hurd, uh, in the IMG, the used to run the, the premier youth academy in the country. They're sort of a talent agency. Uh, they do their rankings of academy players and... In their system, they had ranked Aaron Hurd number one amongst all Academy players in the tw the class of 2025. He is only 15 playing in the U-17s already. So that's a big deal. 
And rumors have that he's going to be, he's already been linked with Bayern Leverkusen in the Bundesliga already. As far as we know, he doesn't have a European passport, so he can't go over and sign with them and play in Europe uh, before he turns 18, which actually is in December of 20, yep, 2023. So if he keeps progressing, he could make the starting lineup of the first game or not the starting lineup, let's say the team roster for the first game in St. Louis, play for six months before he's even eligible to make that transfer over. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that, like, given that his birthday's in December, that's probably why he got linked with, like, the U-17s, is he's about to turn 16. It could be. It could also just be that he's just so much better than his age group. Yeah. That happens a lot. Uh, Jackson Delkus has been playing with the U-16s, but he's also been practicing with the U-17s. And also remember that the uh, lower division league will be starting up soon. The MLS league that they're starting, uh, any of these guys could be on that team. And that's more of the stepping stone between the academy and to the first team, to MLS. And that'll be starting up. Any of these guys, no matter their age, will probably, though we don't know, be eligible for that. But if uh, Aaron Hurd keeps developing, remember he's just a kid, he's a teenager, not even old enough to drive yet. But if he keeps developing with the you know, people looking at him, he's out there on the market, he's a known quantity. If he was able to sign, what a coup for St. Louis City so early to get proof of concept of developing somebody in their academy so early in the lifetime of the club. And yeah, it's great that he's getting linked with, you know, talks with teams overseas, especially someone in Bundesliga. But we've talked about it before and I'm going to bring it up again. How much of how much of that how how good can that be for some of these kids? I mean, you work up through the academy, you don't even play a first team game and you're already moving over to over to Europe, either be it Germany or England. I mean, I'd like to see more of these these kids taking on a bit more of a peppy approach where you play a full season as a starter in the MLS at, you know, when you're 18 and then you've gotten proof of concept that you can play a full 90 and be effective and then go over. Cause if nothing else, that just increases the transfer value. And then it also proves that you can break into the, into the lineup and actually get minutes and actually play instead of some of these kids that go over there and they just sit on the bench the entire time, wasting away on the practice field. So I don't, as much as I love that we're talking about connections, I, I want to see these guys actually grow, not just because it makes our academy look good, but because then that it's we're talking about the next generation of U.S. men's national team here. And I like looking towards the future on that. And I love seeing these young kids. But again, they got to get minutes at club. Well, it's part of the development of them as well. Uh, first of all, was a little hesitant pointing him out, but he made the national team. So He's making news all of himself to bring it up uh, with their development. With that, uh, you know, all of them that are at the, the level that he's at are looking to go to Europe. Now, are you looking at the player's perspective or are you looking at the club's perspective? Or are you looking at the national team perspective? Uh, kind of have to put those into three different slots, I believe. The player is going to want to go and make his chance to play. The club's going to want to 
keep them to a point to where they can maximize contract and revenue for the team, uh, get a contract that fits, get, like I said, MLS still, the academies need proof of concept that they are actually developing players. They can play at those regions. And, uh, and then there with the U S men's national team, everybody just wants them to go to Europe and train with the best. None of those things really all fit together. The club and player probably fit together far more than the wishes for the national team. He is on a national team, but from here to a senior national team's a lot, I mean, 10 years away or, or maybe only three, given what we've seen. Um, but it's a, it's a long step away, but first of all, let's see him develop. Let's see if this talent, as he grows into his body, which he probably hasn't yet, if he's still able to maintain the things that he has. Yeah. When you're talking about a kid this young, you're doing a lot of speculation, but that's what the, that's what U S soccer is doing. That's what, Byron Levinkusen is doing, even to a certain extent, that's what St. Louis City is doing. They're all speculating on the value of this player. Like you said, the player, the club, and the national team are all kind of in tension with one another over what they want. And there is not a perfect synthesis between all three of those things held in tension. Somebody is going to come out the worst party here. I don't know what the correct course of action is. Nobody does. No. I personally am of the opinion, though, that the player should be in consideration first. Exactly. Yeah. And so, but that that basically means that whatever they want to do, right? Whatever their personal pursuit is, not so much that like, oh, I think that all players should stay in MLS, stay in the domestic league and before moving on. If they want to move on, fine, go for it. I wish you the best of luck. I do like Sean's idea of doing something like Pepe, staying in your domestic league and developing further. But is that necessarily best for everyone? No. Well, Pepe just started getting actual true starter minutes later on in this year. And I don't think anybody expects him to stay with Dallas after this year. Of course, he's also been a known quantity and highly rated, probably even far higher than Aaron Hurd for four or five years now, and he's only 18. So how long do you stay in the league? How long do you play? I guess it depends upon, you know, one thing, there is one thing that's missing from this idea is in the meat grinder that is professional soccer, it's different than most uh, uh, professional North American sports is that before these transfers are made, terms have to be done with the player themselves. They do have a voice on what they're going to do. And also, we don't know the length of term of any, well, he's in the academy, but uh, at some point he's going to have to have a contract with the team, especially if he is involved with the professional development league, the LDL that's when you start, I don't know what the structure of that, we have so little news, but you start to think that if you get to that level, there's probably some sort of contract involved uh, for being a homegrown player. And that's where the player gets to choose and decide what they want to do. Uh, that's what Gio Reyna did. That's what Weston McKinney did. They didn't re-up and come back with their MLS team. So they do have the option. 
So at least there's that, as opposed to be a young minor leaguer, though they are 18 at that point, but in the minor leagues of baseball, fresh out, traveling on a bus, and all of a sudden the team just trades you off to somebody else, somewhere else, and pick up everything and move and adapt. And in a lot of cases, the ones that are traded just move to the country uh, when they're traded off. So at least he'll, at least these kids do have some say, but they also still have to develop. There's a lot that goes on, as we all know, at that age. Uh, your mental aspects could disappear. You could get sidetracked. Uh, like I said, the body could develop in a way that you don't like and is not as athletic. Uh, could get injuries, which could be devastating. There's a lot to go on. And and it's a long way out. It's yes. about as far out. It, actually, it's further out than even St. Louis City starting play that he'll be 18 and really be in consideration for any of this. But as we're seeing with the U.S. men's national team and we're seeing all over world soccer, it's not that you make the team and you make your play professionally at 21, 22 anymore. They're really, they're really going after getting players very young especially the big teams, because they it is a commodity. It's an investment. If you spot somebody with talent, you want to get them in. You want to develop them so you can possibly sell them on or become a star for your team that you acquired at a very cheap rate and didn't have to pay 20, 30, 40, 50 million euros to acquire in a transfer. That's the nature of the business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't necessarily want to get into that, but one thing that where especially where I talked about like the player and the club being intention, big part of that is the players are labor. They're considerably well compensated labor, but they are still labor. So you have to consider that whatever a player is being paid, the club is making more than that off of them. Well, you hope. I am a fan of Sunderland, and uh, they're they're in League One because they weren't making enough money or getting enough points off of the players that they had signed for huge amounts of money. But I think that wraps up this conversation. Unless Sean has anything else to say. Uh, nothing, nothing that I haven't already, I haven't already said that hasn't already been said. Um, it's just, it's about finding the balance between what the player wants. And uh, I mean, part of that is also making sure that the coach that they're currently under actually has their best interest in mind and making sure that they, you know, develop at a at a proper rate as opposed to you know trying too much too quick or stagnating but again we've all said pretty much all of it and another word on the academy after uh this weekend's trip to houston they come back to st louis for an away game against uh, st louis so scott gallagher at soccer park on the 13th game time start at five we're planning to be there. The St. Luligans are going to host a tailgate starting at 4, and we hope to meet you all. We've mentioned it before, and we'll mention it again. Uh, also, with uh, St. Louis City, the stadium seems to be progressing quite well. I've seen photographs where the final steel beam has already been put in place at the stadium. Uh, also, the lower division league, the MLS league, uh, has been prepared. St. Louis has already joined. We don't have a lot of information. As was per, was it mentioned earlier that uh, they're going to have tryouts coming up this weekend for those eighteen to twenty four years old, mm -hmm. and uh, and then also in the story that came out on the St. Louis City website, 
said play's going to start in March of 2022, which I'd always heard that this was going to start in 20, or in the fall of 2022. Uh, March of 2022 is pretty exciting. That's pretty quick. It's only a couple of months away. Yeah. yeah. There wasn't a lot of follow-up information, and this happened just before we walked in the studio that we saw this, so follow-up will need to be done. That's big news if it does start in March. Yeah. Um, but you can find more details on the St. Louis city website, but, um, it's their open tryouts, um, for any, any men between the age of 18 and 24 years old. Um, they're, uh, they have two sessions ostensibly session one is open for 64 spots. If that fills up, they will then have the second session also of 64 spots and there will be others held in the future as well. Interesting that they're doing open tryouts, but it makes sense, given the wealth of talent that has been and is in the St. Louis market, that it's not just tied simply to the academy. They're looking citywide and regionwide to try to find talent. Who knows? Maybe nationwide. Yeah, Um, it's open to anyone. And also with this, uh, St. Louis Lions announced that they're going to be back in USL 2 in the fall of 2022, and they're also going to start up a USLW women's team to play in that division, and we hope to have more information, perhaps to hear from them in the future. Yeah, but that's really exciting. I did not think that we were going to get a USLW team in St. Louis. I'm really excited about that. It's good news. There's a lot of soccer ahead in St. Louis leading up to uh, the start of the MLS team. And uh, also, I was listening on the app with some of uh, on the app with their vodcast that they do, and how the coaches of the academy teams were saying how exciting it was to keep seeing people showing up. How the big crowd on that first day that we went to was very exciting for the kids. And let's remember, these are kids; they're pushing their professional dreams. To be supported uh, is very important to them. They're they're taking a big risk. There's a big fall, perhaps, by doing all this, and it's a lot of work for them and their parents, their families, distance from their friends and things they like to do. So let's support them. Don't be hard on them. Support them. Show up and make noise. That's that's what we do. Um, but yeah, it's it's just there's a lot there's a lot of stuff going on with soccer everywhere. Um, there's, you know, we've talked about the futsal courts, um, you know, all the academy games, um, there's St. Louis Scott Gallagher, which we don't even cover. Um, but you know, they, they're playing fuse. Yeah. Lou fuse. Um, and then, you know, next year we're going to have the lions coming back. And then we're also going to have in USLW, um, which I don't think we even really mentioned very much, but that's very cool. Just a lot of stuff. Big question is, when will uh, St. Louis MLS have a W, uh, a women's league pro team come in? Oh, I don't think that's too uh, far off. I think they got a lot to get in order right now. Mm. I would say unless somebody else comes in and starts it, I don't think the club would start it for another two, three years. Announcement could be made, but actually developing and starting it would be a few years off. And also, well, like... Yeah. Yeah, no, what I meant by that was I, I see us starting play for the women's team about, a, a, you know, two seasons after 
the men's team starts. That way you've got your ducks in a row and then you can start, you know, the next well, team. For because NWSL just did a round of expansions and MLS doesn't have like any other affiliation with women's leagues, do they? Well, a lot of MLS teams have affiliations and sometimes part ownership, at least in the women's team. So it's possible. I think a, also, again, to use the phrase proof of concept, to see how it, important the MLS team will fire up people that want to get in on the game uh, in St. Louis. And uh, there's money in St. Louis to do this. They just need to be fired up about doing so. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be exactly surprised if it happened, but there's a lot of moving parts there that requires talks yes. with NWSL. NWSL just did a round of expansion to get Kansas City and I think someone else who's I don't remember, unfortunately, but they're probably not looking to expand again right away, especially after all the news that just broke earlier this year about what happened, what's going on. in yeah. there. They have internal stuff to take care about that's a little wishful thinking that like, oh yeah, like 2025, we're going to have a NWSL team. I don't necessarily think that's on the cards. That's a great point. Uh, there's always the os a possibility that one of these clubs, because it's hard to say, but MLS itself has become so stable now that the idea of, you know, retracting teams or teams moving out of their area seems far beyond that but NWSL is not in that area. There very well could be teams that that are on the verge of bankruptcy, their owners give up their backing, things like that can open up. Hope that's not the case. Hope it always stays more uh, alive and thriving, but there's always that possibility. Been through it with MLS. It's the same growing pains that happen trying to start a professional you know first division soccer league in the u.s is still a very hard thing even look at it right now soccer fans in the u.s have big pushback on mls much less baseball or football or hockey or basketball fans just soccer fans in the U.S. are pushing back on MLS. Until that's broken, the dam, once that's broken, the dam will burst and soccer will be, you know, it'll be popular. It'll be popular on the level nationally of the NHL and uh, Major League Baseball. But like Major League Baseball, it can find a very big niche by being extremely relevant locally. And that's already happened. That's happened in Atlanta, believe it or not. It's happened in Seattle. Everyone believed that was the case. Portland. Kansas uh, City. Kansas City. Uh, Minnesota is a thriving fan base. And believe it or not, I don't know how long it'll last, Cincinnati has a huge fan base as well. Nashville's really gaining importance. And Austin... It's their only professional team other than the University of Texas. But who said that? <laughs> uh, they've taken to it extremely well. So and, it's exciting. And, and then there's also there was Columbus, the Save the Crew movement. Uh, Nashville had that for their USL team. And so many people showed up to save Nashville FC, I believe it was called, that they then moved on to MLS with Nashville SC. 
Um, yeah, FC Cincy getting that promotion, even though they haven't been very good and they need to put some proper product on the field. People in Cincy love their team. Yep. And people in St. Louis are going to love this team. Uh, supporter section, of course, is hard to gauge. There's going to be hardcore supporters, but the amount of tickets that have been sold in the first week uh, in a large supporter section is very encouraging, extremely encouraging already for the team 18 months out. But I think we wrapped up this talk. We've got actual teams playing actively in MLS, and it's coming down to the final week of the season, decision days on Sunday, and we're going to cover all that in all of its beauty and all of its ugly coming up next. See you on the other side. Well, welcome back, lovely listeners. It's time for us to Give a little MLS roundup. It's the last week of the regular season. Things have been exciting. There's been some great plays. There's been some bad play. And there's been some poor plays. But, as always, we'll start off with Sean giving us the Sporting Kansas City moment. Because we know that there's a lot of fans in MLS fans in St. Louis that didn't have an MLS team for years. They latched on to Sporting KC, and we'd like to give them a chance to have something to hang their hats on as they transition into supporting St. Louis City SC. So, what do you guys about Sporting KC this week, Sean? Well, as I said, as I said earlier, tough loss, um, but luckily we we've been in good form lately, so we don't have too much to, to worry about. We just got to get points in the next couple games and worst case scenario we finish fourth and still get a first round home game but we're hoping for that that top seed um but more importantly uh there's obviously one one play that needs to be discussed and that is Amadou Dia absolutely obliterating Reynoso and and getting a yellow card for it uh hot take I need a I need to frame this first uh, because there was almost, almost, there's a couple of slight differences to it, but almost an identical tackle made on the far side of the field by Minnesota United. I believe it was Fragapane, and he got a yellow card for it. So, I I mean, in, in the sake of consistency from the referee, if that one gets a yellow, so does Dia. I, am I saying that Dia should have gotten more? I'm not saying he shouldn't. I'm not saying he should, but if that one got a yellow... Dia gets yellow. Yeah, Dia's looked a little bit more horrific, but sometimes looks are not all it's cracked up to be because there was also a uh, a certain penalty kick that was given that uh, on further review, it, there was no contact whatsoever. Reynoso jumped over Ilya's leg and got the PK, and that gave them a lead. So it's... It's all up in the air, but I don't think in this situation, because Fragapane got the yellow, Dia gets the yellow, I think that's a fair call. What do you guys say? Yeah. Well, I watched the game in its entirety. Uh, the PK, yeah, yeah, the iffy. Uh, Fragapone didn't stand out to me. Uh, 
what stood out on Dia's tackle on Bebe Reynoso was the fact that he was so late uh, and just went through him. If he, luckily, he came in from behind, and Reynoso, who is one of the best players in MLS, uh, he came in behind, he was able to bend and get away from being drastically hurt by that. If he came in on the side, it would have been a devastating injury. Uh, the question is, now this is two weeks in a row where there's what most observers see as clear and obvious red car fouls on Sporting KC that haven't been called in the run of play by the referees. Biggest question I have is, why is Sporting KC all of a sudden playing like this? Well, I'm going to I'm going to stop you right there. I'm just saying I don't think it's that Sporting's playing dirty all of a sudden. It's just that any player on any given day can just they make a decision, it happens. Not saying they're playing dirty all the time. It's just saying red cards happen. They happen. And sometimes the ref doesn't get the call right and sometimes they make the call on the run of play and that's why we have VAR. He was not told to go and look at the screen. So clearly it wasn't quote unquote clear and obvious, but at the same time, yeah, I do think that Dia was wrong and he should have gotten a red card, but also so should have the other one because it was almost the exact same angle. The only difference was Dia went through and hit the, the leg that was furthest away from him, thus putting the near leg in between his legs and he folded. It, it could have been so much worse, but and, well, of course, there's two things here. One is Sporting KC is in a pitch battle to get to win the Western Conference, for what it's worth, over Seattle because they're the two best franchises in the Western Conference. Uh, second of all, we're giving you Sporting KC moment, so I'm giving you hell. <laughs> I expect it. I, I fully expect the flack. And, you know, I'm here to take it. But at the same time, if something's if if it's a zebra, I'm going to call it a zebra. I'm not going to call it a duck. Like, yeah, no, Dia probably should have been sent off. But at the same time, nearly identical tackle should have been called the same way. And again, PK, weak, weak PK given. He, and also dove. He dove. This is not a swimming pool, kids. <laughs> sure. Uh, MLS is a very, if there is one thing that defines MLS is that it's very physical, very fast, and that's what makes it exciting. On the other hand, have they played too many midweek games? What's going on? The referees have been inefficient, let's say. Uh, strikers in the league have been inefficient, let's say. Uh, refereeing here in the late stages, which actually I was thinking MLS refereeing was getting better, but in the last two, three weeks, there's been a lot of instances of incredible inconsistency in the way that both on-field officials and VAR have done games. The biggest one this week, and probably the biggest point, talking point of this week, is the foul that occurred at the extreme end of the Orlando City-Nashville game, in which Alpha for a free kick by Pato, 
Remember him? He was a big signing at the beginning of the year. Pato made a fabulous strike on a free kick. Uh, it didn't go in, but it bounced in front of the goal. The scramble in front of the goal, and Orlando City poked it in at the death. After VAR review, it was determined that Daryl DK had fouled Johnson, the defender for Nashville, and they disallowed the goal. Very controversial. Can we get a review on the VAR review? I think that needs to happen, especially <laughs> on this play, because th- that was the wrong call. Between this and the refing in that like that that one blues blues Colorado game, refs are just dog people. On this one, uh, for my part, my opinion, everybody's looking at DK's foot. Look at the hand that's pulling Johnson back on the shoulder before he ever gets to the ball. I believe that's the call. Now, is that appropriate for VAR to intervene if that was the call? No. Was there a clear and obvious foul? No. But, as opposed to, say, the English Premier League, there was no call from the star chamber coming down that uh, you got it wrong, change your call. The official got to go over and look at what they were looking at. He looked at it, and he agreed that he missed something and took the goal away. Tough call. Yeah, but at the same time, what was happening there? We got it. On the other hand, v- MLS handles VAR very well, but I don't think it was meant in this situation. No, definitely yeah, not. There's a lot of like refing where it's just like subjective calls, and like because this comes up every time anything's invoked. Laws of the game, rule books, whatever. It all comes out and people try to argue this way or that way. And the point of fact is that it's, there's all, sub, like most all of them are subjective calls made by, by officials on the field. And like, you know, like I brought a, I, I made a joke about like the refing in the Blues uh, Avalanche game. It was bad. It was bad officiating, but there was nothing like obvious that stood out. It was just that they weren't paying attention and they were not calling things that they later called stuff that they weren't paying attention. This seems like somebody saw something and then changed their mind. Uh, I, I, the big question I have and see if we hear because. Actually, he's been quite open about this, but Howard Webb, the head of pro, the professional referees organization, is very adamant that VAR in MLS should only be about clear and obvious fouls. And they've done a very good job about that. I'd be like to hear how they feel what this situation was from Howard Webb. Because once he came in and headed up pro, not just to do VAR, but otherwise, MLS officiating has gotten a lot better. Not to say it's good, but it's gotten a lot better. It's all a relative. One last note on the VAR, though, because um, I think we're getting to a point where we're just beating a dead horse. Um, when it comes to VAR, I think we got to... It comes down to what the ref is supposed to be calling. And before VAR, it was. it, it, it comes down to the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. And 
I mean, a lot of times people will be like, oh, you know, they used VAR for this offside or this guy, his feet were behind, were onside, but his head was like six inches beyond the shoulder of the last defender. And I think this is an instance of where they were pulling VAR for letter of the law and not spirit of the law. Spirit of the law was like, oh, yeah. this ref clearly missed this obvious call. And that's why we have the replay. But if you start doing VAR on every little foul, it's like, eh that that wasn't a foul or like oh you didn't miss you missed this foul way back over here or this little bit right here when they scored you know yeah i don't really want it to go like premier league style where they start drawing lines and measuring in micrometers to figure out if someone's offside or something like that that that's just ridiculous don't do that please but what it comes down to in this case is in this case var says there's something here you may have missed. Take a look at it. The official did go over and study the video that was given to him and make a decision that whatever it was, he had missed and changed his call. So the call was made on the field. It wasn't done in the video booth. That's something to keep in mind. VAR didn't override the official, VAR pointed something out to the official, and the official went and looked at it. That's important. Then give us the explanation. Yeah, that's a very... Un give us the explanation. Well, that's a very... It's a very unconventional use of VAR, though, because I mentioned that earlier. It seemed like like the, the official went and reviewed it and then, and then felt differently than what they had originally seen and changed their mind. That's a very... Like that's not that's an unconventional use of video review, but is it necessarily wrong? I would yeah, say it, it, VAR never said that they were going to get rid of wrong. They were going to clear up clear and obvious fouls. But this what but this like is you the said, question I have is was this clear and obvious? Yeah, like you said, this wasn't a call made by like by by the video officials this was a call made by the official on the field right right yeah so we got to decide but anyway we can beat this to death we could it's do an entire episode nowhere, on VAR. VAR. yeah uh, and we just would go, say we just did <laughs> and just go uh, round and round and round and get nowhere so but the important part in mls is not this it's the fact that we're less than one week away from determining who's going to go to the playoffs Playoffs. 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 Talking about playoffs? playoffs. Yes, we are we talking, are talking about, about playoffs. <laughs> and uh, first of all, I want to start with the Western Conference. We do know that only three teams so far, heading into the last week of the season, actually have their fates determined in a positive light. That's Seattle, Sporting KC, and Colorado. One, two, three in the West as it stands at this moment. The ones that are out are San Jose, Dallas, Houston, and Austin. That leaves still six contenders for four spots coming down into the last week of the season. Okay, so how we're going to do this is we're going to do, go down the list of each of the contenders in each conference, and we'll make our picks and see how we do. First of all, in fourth place is Portland. They're on 49 points. Uh, they've got two games. They are playing Wednesday night 
the night this podcast drops. Uh, at RSL, who's in eighth place outside of the playoffs, and then they host Atlanta on Sunday, the last Austin. day. Of his, oh, excuse me, Austin on Sunday. I've got them in. Yeah, they seem more or less like a lock. If they drop a game to Austin, what are they doing? That's a massive upset if they lose to Austin there. Um, yeah, no, RSL's def or not RSL. Portland is definitely in. It's it's Timbers. It's I don't know what it is about the Northwest, but they just put out good good soccer. So I I, I gotta say Portland's in. Uh, in fifth is the LA. Excuse me. In fifth is Minnesota United. In sixth is the LA Galaxy. Minnesota on 48 points, the Galaxy on 47 points. This is the game of the week because on Sunday, they both only have one game. It's Sunday. I've heard that it's going to be the Fox game this weekend. And I will say that whoever wins this game is in the playoffs. The game is in L.A. I think the Galaxy are going to win it. But whoever wins, if it's a draw, all bets are off. Yeah, it, I can't argue with that. Um, that is kind of a yeah, winner's no, take win all. Is in. <laughs> win is in. Yeah. But it's really hard to speculate on that. That's They're separated by one point, and you know, whoever falls behind the other is very much at risk of dropping out of contention. It's really hard to say on that one. On the edge? But at the same time, at the same time, you could lose the game and still get that final spot. So it, who knows? Who knows? Right. But winner is definitely inner. And uh, the last line of the playoffs is at number seven is Vancouver on 47 points. But they got to they got to run in. They have to play at LAFC tonight, the night of recording on Tuesday. So it'll be finished before listeners get to hear this. And then on Decision Day Sunday, they get to play, you know, at home against Seattle. I don't think Vancouver's making it. I don't see it likely they pick up a win in Seattle. So they are really going to be fighting for their lives, play in LAFC, and even then that might not be enough. Um, Hot take. Vancouver makes it, in my opinion. It's not far-fetched. They beat LAFC. I think they beat LAFC, and they clinched that spot. They're definitely going to be... Vancouver's in. They're going to be fighting for their lives, though. Just below the playoff line, and two points behind Vancouver, is Real Salt Lake. They, as we mentioned, they have to go to Port... Or, actually, they host Portland on Wednesday night. And then they have to go to Sporting Kansas City on Sunday. They're up and down. They're very pretty in attack. They're loose in defense. I don't think they're going to get the points. I definitely don't see them winning SK against SKC. In or out? I I I gotta say that uh, Salt Lake is out. They've just been too roller coaster this season. I don't see Salt Lake making it. And then finally, in ninth place, 
But coming up hard is LAFC, only on 44 points. That means they're three points behind Vancouver uh, to make the playoff spot. I think they're going to win at home against Vancouver, which is played tonight after we record uh, on Tuesday. And then they go to Colorado on Sunday, who's in third place and not even playing for position or they could be playing for first in the West, but I doubt it. I think LAFC's in, and Vancouver's out. Sean's already said Vancouver's in. I I don't know here. Um, I don't know enough about either LAFC or Vancouver to say who I take in that matchup. Um, I think I favor LAFC Colorado more than I favor Vancouver Seattle. But that those are do or die games for both of those clubs. I think talent, talent, I don't know. talent will out. Yeah, I think LAFC. I just want to say on the uh, on the Vancouver versus Seattle against the LAFC versus Colorado. Um, Vancouver versus Seattle is always highly contested because it's that classic Cascadia Cup, baby. So I, I, that's why I got the Caps in because who knows? They might upset Seattle on decision day. That's true. I got the Caps in, and I think by the grace of God, I'm not saying they end up in this order, but I think the play the teams that are above the playoff line right now are the teams that are finishing above the playoff line. Don't know the order, but I think the – four through seven are going to end up in the playoffs. I wouldn't be surprised to see that. I also wouldn't be surprised for Salt Lake to sneak in. Hmm. I think, I think, I think I'm taking Vancouver. Eh, I won't say Vancouver in, but I am taking LAFC out. Very good. We got our picks. Did you take On notes? Whoever loses this has to buy the first round at the uh, Academy game on November 13th, guys. Well, nobody told me that. I don't want to play that. (laughs) Ah! Too late. Looking at the Eastern Conference hitting the playoffs, we know who's in. Absolutely, New England's in. They've wiped the entire league. Philadelphia. Philadelphia's in second in the East they lost Brendan Aronson. They lost Mark McKenzie. They played a lot of the kids, including Aronson's brother Paxton and the exciting Jack McGlynn. Uh, they're up to second and playing very well right now, getting themselves rounded in. Excited about Philadelphia, the dupe. Nashville chasing a record for the most draws in league history. And NYCFC. That one is a very surprising. They bounce back. They're playing extremely well. Tati Castellanos is in great form, and they're in. Out is, well, who you expect? Miami, Chicago, Toronto, Cincinnati. Yeah, no no shockers there. There are six contenders left in the Eastern Conference, but it's not quite as difficult to pick as the Western Conference. At number five, 48 points, is Orlando. They've got one game left against number 10, Montreal, on 43 points. I think Orlando's in. Yeah, Orlando's not going anywhere. They might drop a spot. 
or a couple of spots. They're not they're not going anywhere. I don't see Orlando missing out. Atlanta is uh, in sixth place on 47 points. Uh, their run-in is iffy. They've got to play the team right below them, one point behind in the red-hot uh, New York Red Bulls, and that's on Wednesday night. And then Sunday, they're at Cincinnati. I think they're going to lose to the Red Bulls. I think they're going to beat Cincinnati, and they're in. Now, nice comeback for Atlanta from where they were before they fired Gabriel Henze. Yeah, I yeah, I think Atlanta's in. I think Atlanta and Red Bull and Red Bulls are going to draw and make it very interesting on decision day. That's the way I see this I happening. agree, but I was <laughs> I want to talk about that after we talk about Red Bulls. Yeah, because uh, the Red Bulls are a little tougher than Atlanta because well, they got to play Atlanta on Wednesday and then they have to play at Nashville who's number 3 in the conference on Sunday. They're on 46 points, two points ahead of D.C. in eighth place. And Red Bulls are hot, playing very good, disruptive soccer again in the Red Bull style. I say they're in. Yeah, I also think that Red Bulls are in. But Atlanta Red Bulls is the most important game in the whole conference for contenders. Oh, Like Sean was mentioning, if they, yeah, if they draw... That starts putting it out of reach for anyone below them. It's a very, very important game. In uh, eighth place is DC United on 44 points, two points behind the Red Bulls below the line. Their game is Sunday at Toronto, who's out, who's playing pretty well, to be honest. DC does have more wins than Red Bulls or Atlanta as the first tiebreaker. And if Atlanta or the Red Bulls don't win either one of their games, DC could trump them. I don't see it happening. I think DC's out. Plus, they're racked with injuries and not playing well at the end of the season. They're out. I think DC is out. But if the Red Bulls draw and then lose to Nashville, they could sneak in. I could see DC sneak in as well. Yeah, this is also true of Columbus, which they... Sneaky in doesn't... What are you calling? One in or out? I'm going to say DC's out, but there is there's this chance for both DC and Columbus next on the list to do that. It's MLS. Everyone has a chance. It's still in. In or out, Sean? I think DC's out, honestly, just because Toronto's already been playing massive spoiler alert for the last couple weeks. DC's out, and that's their last game. Toronto just trumps them 2-1. DC's out. In uh, ninth place is actually hot now, after we wrote them off, which happens every time we write somebody off, uh, is Columbus Crew, the defending MLS Cup champions. Uh, Lucas Zellerion is back in form for the first time all season and just hitting bangers all over the place. But they've only got one game left, and they are... Two points behind the Red Bulls, who have two games. They have a game in hand. The Red Bulls have a game in hand over Columbus. Columbus game is they're hosting Chicago, who's out. Columbus isn't, ex- you know, thrilling me too much. I just, too much for them to do. They waited too late. They're out. Yeah, for the same reasons that DC's out, because they're tied um, on points. 
yeah, it, they're also out. I would have to say that uh, if any of these three below the line teams are going to make it, it's going to be Columbus just because they're playing the fire, but they're also out. But if anyone has a chance of sneaking in, it's Columbus. But 95% chance they're out. And in 10th place in the conference, and still fighting for a playoff berth, hmm, uh, is Montreal. Club de foot, Montreal. I think they have kind of dropped that moniker and prefer CF Montreal now because they figured out that ang- <laughs> that uh, Anglophones uh, think that Club de Foot is as funny as we do think it is. <laughs> I don't care. It's your official name. Uh, they're at 43 points. They're fading badly. They fought so well and done so much this year, but they just seem to be lacking talent and running out of steam. But their lineup, mm, let's see, they have to really win out to have a chance. They are hosting Houston, who's out of the playoffs and hasn't been good all year, but is red hot on Wednesday night. And then they wrap up the season with a big game, possibly, against Orlando. And they host Orlando uh, on Sunday. They got a long way to go. They haven't been playing well. There are... A lot of teams between them and where they want to be, I have to say they're out. Yeah. Montreal, I feel a lot more confident saying are out than I felt saying either DC or Columbus are. Montreal's not making it. DC, Columbus, they might. I don't feel super confident about that, but I do feel quite confident saying Montreal's out. They're not going to make it. Yeah, no, Montreal's definitely out. Um, They're about sitting where... Uh, the earthquakes were last week where if they won a critical game, they might've made it in, but no, Montreal's just too little, too late. They might finish eighth, but they're not making it. And the quakes did win a critical game with a fantastic score from 18 year old Kate Cowell, but they're still out. Montreal's out. However, I will say out of all the teams going down to the last week, Kudos to Vancouver and CF Montreal, who I don't think anybody picked to be this high up and this intrinsic into the actual playoff race going into the final week of the season. Kudos to them for a good season. And also RSL for really being the heart of this with no ownership and their coach left in the middle of the season to become an assistant with the Sounders. Yeah. Kudos to them for there, but all three of them, I pick them as out. This is going to turn out, this is going to shape up to be a tremendous end of the season. I, I hope we all have ESPN Plus so we can watch all of the games on Decision Day. I don't know about you, but I'm going to have one on my TV, one on my laptop, and one on my phone at all times. Oh, you know, guys, we're all podcasters. Extra Time Radio is going to live broadcast Decision Day on Sunday. All the games through both of the windows. Yeah, we're not doing that. We're not. <laughs> we're not doing, doing that. that. <laughs> no. I don't even know if I'm going to listen to any of that. Oh, no, I can't wait to watch all doing. this fall out. I can't wait to watch it all fall into place on the last day. It's going to be so exciting. It's going to be like for us Cardinals fans. Remember 2011? That, wild, that last oh. wild day of the regular season. 
it's gonna be like that yeah and uh well i guess we're mostly neutrals here because at least for mike and i we don't really have a horse in this race and sean's horse is already in so yeah we just get to kind of sit back and watch the fireworks on this one and oh boy are there gonna be fireworks and my last word to wrap this all up is mls playoffs man parody's working great there's excitement for so many teams uh down down to the last week of the season on the other hand some of the teams we're talking about aren't very good <laughs> but they've <laughs> been playing spoilers <laughs> chicago toronto and, i'm looking at you on the other hand lafc playing better at the end of the season getting carlos vela back sneaking into the playoffs is something to be very, very other teams in the West need to be worried about. I think that I had mentioned this um, a couple of shows back, kind of made a joke about it, but it's not so much a joke. Um, This is the most any given Sunday league I've ever seen, especially this season. This Coming down to the wire like this with this many teams in contention, I've never seen anything like this before. In granted, I don't follow American football, but even American football, sometimes the seasons are decided for teams by week five. You just for yourself if that's great or not. Yeah, but, and everyone will have a one side or the other opinion, and both sides are correct in their opinion. Well, no, they are wrong in their opinion because they like American football. But <laughs> no, I meant about MLS coming down to the end. Uh, <laughs> why do you have to offend uh, uh, so many uh, Americans? Because I prefer my blood sport on ice. Offense gets hate listens, and hate listens are still listens, baby. <laughs> We've drone on long enough. I think it's time to wrap this up. What do you think, guys? I absolutely oh, yes. agree. <laughs> And uh, I'm your host, Mike Turner. I'm your producer, Mason. And I'm your resident hooligan, Sean Gamble. And we are the Soccer Capital Podcast. Again, thank you very much for listening, especially if you made it this far into the show. Bye for now.